Thanks so much, David, uh, for the invitation. It's great to be here, and thanks to you all very much for coming. Um, my paper today brings together some ideas that have struck me in the context of my own teaching at University College Dublin, both on the professional masters of education and the more general masters of education. Um, and I've been thinking particularly about the space for literature in programmes of that sort. So without further ado, the title of my paper is From Joyce to McKeown, that is James Joyce to Belinda McKeown, The Role of the Short Story in the Education of Teachers. In his seminal work, The Courage to Teach, exploring the inner landscape of a teacher's life, Parker J. Palmer brings to critical attention not teaching methodologies, nor teaching techniques, but the very identity and integrity of the person who teaches. In an extended meditation on the life of the teacher at all educational levels, Palmer chooses to foreground the significance of personhood, of self-knowledge and of self-expression. The questions most commonly asked in teaching, he expands, relate to the what, the how and the why. What subjects shall we teach? What techniques are required to teach well? And for what purpose do we teach in the first place? But very seldom do we train our gaze on the who. Very seldom do we ask ourselves, in Palmer's own words, who is the self that teaches? How does the quality of my selfhood form or deform the way I relate to my students, my subject, my colleagues, my world? How can educational institutions sustain and deepen the selfhood from which good teaching comes? With Palmer's writing in general and with his emphasis on selfhood in particular, there is a curious air of untimeliness. There is a distinct sense of the quaint or the old fashioned that even in 1998, on the initial publication of Courage, that Palmer's chosen vocabulary was already antiquated, already passé. This sense is heightened further perhaps by his later references to spirituality, to heart and to communion these terms sit uneasily with contemporary discourses of teaching and learning. Notwithstanding this very particular register, however, I would still maintain that Palmer's arguments merit extended critical attention and that his words, untimely or otherwise, need to be taken very seriously. To highlight one important example, it is central to Palmer's careful excursus on the experience of the practicing teacher that he places emphasis not on power but on authority an authority that is rooted not in skill, nor even in experience, but in the teacher's inner life. The clue is in the word itself, he writes, which has author as its core. Authority is granted to people who are perceived as authoring their own words, their own actions, their own lives, rather than playing a scripted role at great remove from their own hearts. When teachers depend on the coercive powers of law or technique, they have no authority at all. Undoubtedly, Palmer's emphasis on authority garners special significance in a contemporary educational landscape increasingly characterised by obfuscation, by indecision and by self-doubt. Struggling to stay apace with a rapid battery of intervention and innovation, teachers at all levels are diverted from any development of self-knowledge or self-expression or indeed from any cultivation of the inner realm. Teachers are given less and less time to develop insights into themselves and their experience, let alone the experience of their students, 
And they're given less and less encouragement to consider any of these insights as at all important. As Palmer frames the point, the degree to which contemporary teachers know and trust their own selves and the degree to which contemporary teachers are willing to make this selfhood available and vulnerable in the service of learning is badly hampered by a prevailing technicist mindset, by an overemphasis on policy, on pedagogy and on procedure. Building on the work of Palmer, it is a central claim of this paper that central consideration should be given to the identity and integrity of the teacher and moreover that an especially promising route for the cultivation of both is an education in the humanities. I argue in what follows for the importance of literature in the education of teachers. More specifically, I consider how the brevity and concision of the short story form allows for a very particular kind of educational impact. In reading short fiction, I suggest teachers are offered a reprieve from professional and sometimes life-limiting discourses, a reprieve from those heavy vocabularies tending to foreground method and technique over to parse Palmer once again, self-knowledge and self-expression. My focus on short fiction over other literary genres is motivated by the uniqueness of the short story format. In the 19th century, Edgar Allan Poe had argued for the short story's unity of effect, which might be conveyed over a limited number of episodes or scenes. There is a certain completeness or satisfaction afforded by the short story, according to Poe, at least when its various elements harmoniously combine. Typically, the ambition of the short story is one of mood rather than plot, where complex characterization gives way to concise narrative. Interestingly, in his seminal work, The Lonely Voice, the Irish writer Frank O'Connor enters a claim for the peculiar Irishness of the short story, arguing that the genre offers a means for submerged population groups to address a dominating community. In O'Connor's view, Irish writers have unique experience of the liminal and the marginal. They are constitutionally understanding of what it means to be isolated. Certainly, there is a pr proud tradition of short story writing in the Irish literary context, from O'Connor's Guests of the Nation in 1931 to the 20th century stylings of Sean O'Fuelan, Maeve Brennan and William Trevor. More recently, a fresh generation of writers, among them Mary Costello, Colin Barrett and Kevin Barry, have made the short story their own, though arguably from the format's emblematic motifs of individual isolation and glancing relationship, these, these same writers have never strayed too far. Bearing in mind this critical plea for the distinctly Irish tenor of the short story, this paper dwells for analysis on modernist and contemporary writing in the Irish tradition. Its key literary exemplars include the canonical Dubliners, published in 1914, as well as the experimental Dubliners 100, published in 2014. While the former emerged as the initial prose work of a young James Joyce, the latter features writing from a selection of contemporary Irish writers, among them Emer McBride, Donal Ryan, Belinda McKeown and Elska Rahel, who respond in the same format to Joyce's original collection. Part of my ambition in reading these texts together is to set up a conversation between modernist and contemporary writing and to explore the educational potential of both. Moreover, in remembering the insights of Palmer, I'm concerned throughout the paper with selfhood 
and its cultivation, my focus remains with the inner life of the teacher and how this life might be awakened and refined and uniquely so in the experience of the short story. I begin with Counterparts, the ninth story in the original Dubliners collection, reimagined for Dubliners 100 by Co County Longford writer Belinda McKeown. From Joyce's Dublin to McKeown's New York, a stream of consciousness narrative determines the story's setting and its pace. We are plunged immediately into interiority and dissatisfaction. Morning climbs towards her over the Black Ridge of the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, and already she has been with them for hours, and the hours have passed like minutes, and the milk in her coffee has become an ultrasound, tawny, speckled, indifferent to her gaze. Tweet that, Elizabeth thinks, fingers poise, fingertip poised for the camera icon, but in the next instant she has drawn back her hand. Someone she does not know will only tell her something she knows too well. Somewhere between knowingness and genuine insight, McKeown's Elizabeth is a 35-year-old Irish woman who has completed a PhD on Joyce's Ulysses. She has recently relocated to New York, where she works, for the most part resentfully, as an intern in a publishing company. The texture of Elizabeth's world is more hyper-real than real, however, as she is involved increasingly with her computer screen and its deafening demands. This is Joycey and paralysis, undoubtedly, but one for the social media generation. The staccato rhythms of McKeown's prose underline the distraction, the near-dementedness of her central character. Elizabeth is enmeshed in the loop of cyber compulsion and repetition, drawn back to the city that could not employ her and to a cast of characters convinced of their own originality. She's implicated in the lives of strangers, mostly harmless, but endlessly inane. In her office on Suffolk Street, Susan Nolan is thinking tea. Susan Nolan is going on about how essential it is that she make herself a cup of tea right now this minute. Hashtag something or other. A stream of words shoved together like children in a creche. Isabel Carney wants tea too, and Isabel Carney will go on about biscuits. Elizabeth is watching, Elizabeth is staring, and Elizabeth does not know these women. Elizabeth would not recognise <coughs> either of these women if she met them in the street. In New York... Elizabeth will never escape Dublin, and in New York, regretfully, Elizabeth's lived experience is marred by withdrawal and procrastination. Still in a haze of checking and scrolling, she just about manages to shower and to leave her apartment. Strangers on the subway are self-involved and undiscerning. They offer little connection to the outside world. When Elizabeth eventually arrives at her office, we learn that her internship role involves the organisation and administration of Rejoice a literary festival aiming to open doors and break down walls in McKeown's acerbic account. The festival is, quote, a collaboration between the New York Fiction House and the Irish Department of Culture, McKeown writes, quote, which means that Ireland will provide the money and New York will provide the impression of glamour, end quote. Elizabeth is currently tasked with drafting a press release on Joyce's international influence, by her own admission, she has not typed a single word since Friday. Sullivan, her boss, flitters in the background, attempting to exert pressure, but being for the most part ineffective. Indeed, Sullivan is not entirely real to Elizabeth. She regards him with a mixture of hazy contempt and grudging fear. What is particularly notable about McKeown's story is its heavy mood of dissatisfaction and claustrophobia. As readers, we are positioned uncomfortably in her central character's psyche, and for the most part, and 
increasingly as the story unfolds, we would prefer to escape. Something of Elizabeth's social media obsession is too uncomfortably familiar and her lack of real relationship limits our sense of who she is. It is a relief when a plot eventually emerges. There is an accidental faux pas on Twitter, a misplaced comment in the context of a missing child is, interpreting, is interpreted as unfeeling and obscene, and Elizabeth is fired from her job. In the wake of professional disaster and humiliation, her sense of self is not jolted awake, but recedes even further. After she has logged off, she says, staring at the dark screen for a moment as though it might give something, as though it might be something other than a flat plane of glass in which she cannot discern even her own shadow. But they have found the child, so she learns an hour later when she gets back to the apartment. They have found the girl. So there is that, at least. There is that. At the heart of McKeown's counterparts is a sense of personal life wasted and self-sabotaged and of professional life combative and resentful. In both these respects, her story artfully remembers the mood of Joyce's original version, where in Counterparts 1914, our central character is the Dublin-based Farrington, seemingly even less purposive and even more brooding than New York-based Elizabeth. When he stood up, he was tall and of great bulk. He had a hanging face, dark wine-coloured with fair eyebrows and moustache. His eyes bulged forward slightly and the whites of them were dirty. Farrington is a middle-aged office worker who sneaks out for Porter a few times a day. In comparison to Elizabeth scrolling and checking, he is plagued with addiction of a different kind. He is dogged by a similar self-hatred, however, and this self-hatred devolves in a similar manner procrastination to conflict and even to abuse. His solicitor boss hounds Farrington for unfinished paperwork but he cannot complete the task. He is distracted like Elizabeth and he is paralyzed by his distraction. He returned to his desk in the lower office and counted the sheets which remained to be copied. He took up his pen and dipped it in the ink but he continued to stare stupidly at the last words he had written. In no case shall the said Bernard Bodley be. The evening was falling and in a few minutes they would be lighting the gas. Then he could write. He stood up from his desk and, lifting the counter as before, passed out of the office. On his return to the office, the unfinished work is noted and Farrington is severely reprimanded by Elaine and other colleagues. He isn't fired in this instance, but even this momentary salvation is an unhappy one. That Farrington will remain in his post and in his everyday misery seems clear. Indeed, this misery is even more consequential than Elizabeth's, as Farrington commutes home to bring his anger to the domestic sphere. He felt savage and thirsty and revengeful, annoyed with himself and with everyone else. A very sullen-faced man stood at the corner of O'Connell Bridge, waiting for the little Sandymount tram to take him home. He was full of smouldering anger and revengefulness. He felt humiliated and discontented. He did not even feel drunk, and he had only two pence in his pocket. He cursed everything. His heart swelled with fury, and when he thought of the woman in the big hat who had brushed against him and said pardon, his fury nearly choked him. Across the 20th and the 21st centuries, what unites the counterparts' stories is the imaginative access to unhappy protagonists and haggard lives. Trapped in mental cages of their own construction, the experiences of Farrington and Elizabeth are ones of atrophy and inevitable decline. 
Um, in both literary portraits, indeed, external circumstance is drawn as largely unimportant as the reader is enmeshed in the character's dissatisfaction and stifled rage. Importantly, I would argue, it is the peculiar achievement of fiction to cultivate this interiority. It is the peculiar achievement of fiction to bridge the gap between our own experience and that of others. Fiction makes us less lonely, to parse American writer David Foster Wallace, as in the experience of reading we are given unique insight into others' psyche, others' foibles, others' dissatisfaction and others' truth. In the specific case of counterparts, both original and updated, we recognise the misery of Elizabeth at her computer screen and Farrington on his bar stool, and yet we draw certain comfort from imaginatively inhabiting their inner lives. This comfort might be explained as a reprieve from the repetitions of our own existence, or perhaps as a realisation that self-control eludes the lives of others just as surely as it eludes ours. It is not that we see replicas of ourselves in Farrington or in Elizabeth, but that in our intimacy with these characters, our distance from our own selves usefully recedes. <coughs> our self-awareness is sharpened, you might say, as the literary text offers a new perspective on what we might hope from reality. Holding these ideas in suspension, however, exactly how the experience of others' interiority might move us towards self-knowledge or self-expression remains for the most part obscure. On this complex question, I would suggest that the work of Stanley Cavell offers unique insight. It is worth noting that throughout Cavell's oeuvre, there is a pronounced emphasis on the self and on self-knowledge, on coming to awareness of one's cares and commitments through effortful discussion with another. Indeed, that philosophy in its moder modern expression has characteristically neglected or debased the self is a consistent preoccupation of Cavell's writings. Finding direct expression in the claim of reason and must we mean what we say, and subtly reinforced in the idiosyncratic blend of philosophy and criticism distinctive of the later writings, this preoccupation comes to the fore equally prominently in the ethical political work. In response to the perceived selflessness of modern philosophy and politics, Cavell defends a moral register prioritizing self-examination, self-education and self-transformation. This moral register he terms Emersonian perfectionism. Perfectionism for Cavell pictures the self as somewhat divided and somewhat in motion. Absolute perfection is never the ideal nor the goal. Rather, any progression from one version of self to another is conceived as ongoing and interminable. As Espen Hammer points out, Cavellian self-definition is essentially communal. I cannot work out my identity on my own, as sometimes I need education or instruction from another, the figure of the friend. What is particularly interesting about this account is its suggestion that the friend may be a real-life interlocutor, or, more relevantly for the purposes of this article, the friend may be a written text. Reading a text offers a perfectionist encounter, Cavell writes, in the process of which we are drawn forward to newer and alternative versions of our own identity. Stephen Mulhall has interpreted this theory of perfectionism as Cavell's psychoanalytic account of reading, whereby we are read by texts just as surely as they are read by us. In Mulhall's understanding, psychoanalysis is for Cavell, quote, a paradigm for the general business of reading, where the relationship between a reader and a text, as Mulhall expands, is strongly analogous to the relationship between analysis and analyst in psychoanalytic therapy. In any interpretive encounter, both parties are central to the process of communication, of sense-making and of recovery. 
Thus, again in Mulhall's words, the relationship between reader and text is dialogical and dialectical, because in the unique experience of reading fiction, a reader is drawn forward by the text in imaginative and compelling ways. If we are to follow Cavell's perfectionist account, then we come to appreciate the unique reflexivity of literary interpretation. In any act of reading, a reader's identity is not settled or confirmed or left alone, but meaningfully called into question. I'm uh, my final section. In Cavell's efforts to recover and foreground the self in contemporary philosophical discourse, we are returned to Palmer and his emphasis on selfhood in the education of teachers. Palmer's foregrounding of such related concepts as interiority, self-knowledge and inner life might have a certain ring of the old-fashioned or the untimely, and yet these concepts might nonetheless chime with one recent conceptual development in the philosophy of education. This is the so-called ontological turn, and it is identified in the context of higher education specifically by Ronald Barnett and Gloria Dall'Alba. Dall'Alba in particular has written at length about professional education and its need to cultivate the whole person. It is not enough for learners merely to understand new concepts or acquire new skills, she argues. This does not produce skillful practitioners. Instead, they are to transform as people, to become architects, psychologists, biologists, etc., who enact ways of being in the world appropriate to the practice in question that are also responsive to changing practice contexts. For Dalalba, this change in emphasis involves a move from an epistemological to an ontological dominant. In this context, and here undeniably there are significant echoes of Palmer, the development of professionals is seen less in terms of what they know and more in terms of who they are, or more accurately, who they are becoming. Thus, Dalalba argues, teacher education programs should focus on developing ways of being. They should focus on ontology just as much as epistemology. Her critical call, therefore, is for personhood over, te over technical knowledge, for programs, quote, that engage the whole person, what they know, how they act, and who they are. Bearing in mind the incisiveness of Dalalba's call, the central claim of this paper is that the reading of fiction offers one very promising pathway for the development of teachers' identity. It makes a claim in particular for the potential of the short story. When teachers read literary fiction, I argue, the, the text acts as a perfectionist interlocutor that calls these teachers on to newer and alternative versions of themselves. The text in Cavellian terms operates as the figure of the friend, where varieties of self are mirrored or challenged or in certain senses brought to clarity. The short story in particular facilitates this movement because of its necessary self-containment. Typically, it foregrounds one central character and no more than one significant incident. The short story, moreover, can be read in one sitting, thus allowing for a uniquely concentrated educational experience. The short story can transform, one might say, as it is formally constructed to achieve a singular and potent impression. This is Poe's unity of effect, at least where individual narrative elements harmoniously and powerfully combine. In encountering McKeown's Elizabeth or Joyce's Farrington, to return to our key exemplars, the reader finds themselves immersed in the lives of fictional others with whom they identify to a lesser or a greater extent. In this identification, there is an escapism, certainly. The reader is gifted with the space and the time to see their own experiences anew. The reader as teacher is both opened up and brought forward as a situation of reading is a peculiarly reflexive one. 
more precisely, as Cavell would have it, the situation of reading turns the reader around as it performs its own act of interpretive power. In Cavell's words, quote, it is not first of all the text that is subject to interpretation, but we in the gaze or hearing of the text. In this interpretive mode, our imaginative forays are in important senses redemptive. As we emerge from immersion in the stories of Farrington and Elizabeth, there is a strong sense of coming back to ourselves, of possession we gained in the wake of woundedness, confusion or loss. Staying with this idea of redemption, I would suggest in closing that the reading of fiction opens up restorative ways of thinking or speaking in the context of a very specific and very colonising professional discourse. As Amanda Fulford has made explicit, there are certain educational cultures, and initial teacher education is prominent among them, which authorise and simultaneously exclude particular ways of thinking and talking. It is as if the use of certain quasi-technical terminology has a stifling effect, writes Fulford, and she has in mind especially those technical aspects of classroom planning, of classroom practice, planning, classroom management, reflective writing, etc., that threaten to take over every teacher's experience in their early career. Inframed by these technical aspects, teachers are encultured to speak and to think with a particular set of terms in the Irish context we might suggest as key examples facilitating learning, evidence-based pedagogy, reflective practice, and these terms carry increasing weight in an era of accountability and regulation. These terms begin to take over, one might say, um, as it becomes increasingly difficult to speak or even to think outside them. Indeed, a key aspect of becoming a teacher is socialization into and fluency in this very set of professional <coughs> vocabularies. In the most extreme cases, however, and this is Fulford's major point, these colonizing discourses lead eventually to crises of expression and voicelessness. Rewarded for their regurgitation of standard practices and responses and rewarded moreover for fabrication or manipulation of personal reflections, a beginning teacher's identity begins to fracture and dissipate. From these same weighty discourses, the practice of reading offers an important reprieve. Fiction gives to teachers an entirely new set of vocabularies, an entirely fresh repertoire of imaginings. In the space of professional education, indeed, reading fiction exemplifies what Michael Oakeshott has termed the gift of the interval. It exemplifies an educational timeout that challenges just as much as it renews. Such an interval is absolutely necessary so that we might lose our way in order to come back as different persons. This is the space for the unpredictability of new beginnings, in John Nixon's illuminating phrase. In this reflexive process, there is unique potential for reconstruction or remaking. There is unique potential for the cultivation of identity and for personal slash professional wholeness. Returning one final time to Dal Alba, it is important that this cultivation is a matter of ontology rather than epistemology. Becoming a teacher physiotherapist or lawyer, as she points out, involves turning around or transforming the self through interrogating and reshaping assumptions about what it means to teach, provide physiotherapy or apply the rule of law. New ways of being are opened to aspiring professionals and can begin to take shape. In other words, and as counterintuitive as this might seem, what matters in the realm of professional education is marked alienation from familiar or everyday practice. What matters 
is that the beginning professional might turn away from what is given or what is accepted so that they might in time turn back with greater clarity and purpose. In a small but very significant sense then, the way is made clear for the event of professional education. The way is made clear for settled discourses to lift and for novel possibilities to enter. Hannah Arendt has suggested that through education we are offered the talisman of natality or new beginnings. Following this Arendtian line, the claim is entered here and in conclusion for literary fiction as uniquely talismanic. Thank you.